Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Well, good morning, everyone. Let's try that again. Good morning, everyone. So thankful that you're here worshiping with us, whether in person here in the sanctuary or online at home. We are in the middle of a sermon series that's entitled Eastertide. And if you came from the high church world, you know what Eastertide is. And if you didn't, you probably don't. Eastertide is the 50 days between Jesus' resurrection on Easter Sunday morning and then Pentecost Sunday 50 days later. So what this sermon series is all about is we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus from when he was resurrected to when the day of Pentecost happens, when the Holy Spirit is poured out and the church is born. Now, this morning we're going to read an episode where Jesus has an interaction with a disciple named Thomas. We know him as Doubting Thomas. But before we get there, I want to encourage you to do a couple of things. And one of them is this. The way the Bible is written, it's an Eastern piece of literature. And the way it is written is done so that the expectation is there that you will step into the Bible story. That you won't read it from a distance, but instead when you read the gospel accounts and you read Paul's letters and the rest of the Newer Testament, that you literally step into it and you ask yourself a few questions. First of all, who's like me in the story? Yes, that question. Another question you'd ask is, well, if I was in the story, what would I think? How would I respond? Maybe what emotions would you have? And so again, the Bible is written in such a way that it expects no passive bystanders. The assumption is, is that all of us will step into the story and ask ourselves some of those questions. Now with that, speaking of being involved, just real quickly, I wanted to give a shout out that as you exit City Church Central today, there are these bags that we put together yesterday. We put about 400 of these bags together. We do this on a regular basis so that people can take a few of those, keep them in your car, and if you go by someone that's in need, maybe on the street corner or whatever, that you could reach out and hand that to them. If you want to give those people money, that's up to you. But I also noticed that it looks like some of the kids at City Church added some stickers. So the sticker here is a picture of a frog. That has to do with Jesus. And then uh, also the Jesus Loves You sticker. So I wanted to encourage you to go ahead and grab a few of those that you exit. They're on the table straight ahead and utilize those over the next couple of weeks. Now, before we jump into our story with Doubting Thomas, what I want for us to do, all of us, is I'd like you to take a moment to think about a time and a place where a God experience touched your life. Literally want you to do that. I want you to think for a moment and go to a time and a place where a God experience touched your life. A God experience where maybe some of your thoughts came together and suddenly faith leapt into your life. It could be where you were somewhere and you just sensed God's presence. It could be any number of things. But I want you to take a moment and think about a time and a place where a God experience touched your life. Then in doing that, I have a follow-up question. 
that God experience, were you with people or were you alone? Were you in a group? Were you alone? And then the next question I have is, did you tell someone? Following that God experience, did you tell someone about the God experience of your life? When I was thinking about my own life and the God experiences of my life, I was drawn to the time when I was 16 years old and felt a call into the ministry. It was in 1981, and I was a junior in high school heading into my senior year, and I had never thought about ministry. As a matter of fact, there's no one in my, our family who was ever a pastor. Although I admired my youth pastor and loved youth group, it was not something that had really entered my mind. But what we often did in our youth group was we'd play games, have a great time, then the youth pastor would preach. When, we were, when he was done preaching, we would spend time in prayer, whether sitting in your chairs. Some would come forward to pray and worship would happen. It was kind of like a worship prayer time. By the way, that's what we, we will be doing here this Friday night at 7 o'clock at City. We're going to have a worship and prayer time. Come if you can. And so I found myself after the sermon and during the worship, I came forward and I was on the right side of the stage in that sanctuary and uh, I just knelt down and I prayed. And while I was praying, I don't know how to say it any other way than God spoke to me, not audibly, but in the depths of my soul. And I felt God say to me, I am calling you to full-time ministry. I felt it. And so when I got up from that, I, I kind of knelt there and prayed and was processing that a little bit, but I knew that God had spoken to me, and I got up, and it, there were pews in this church, and I went to the center aisle, and there was a, a, a young lady that I had been dating who was part of the youth group, and we met in the center of the aisle to walk out. She'd been praying on one side, I'd been praying on the other, and when we met to walk out the door, she said to me, you just got called into the ministry, didn't you? Absolutely blew my mind. Now, that was the kindness of God and the goodness of God, and God doesn't always confirm his call that way at all. But God, I think, knew that I would need that. And so God had spoken to her while he was spoken to me. And, and by the way, just so you know, my wife, Fran, is way more awesome than, than that girl. Thank you. Now, the idea is, though, is that when I exited that time, I remembered going home and telling my parents that I'd been called into the ministry. Now, my mother is a full-on follower of Jesus. My dad, not a Christian, didn't go to church. I remember going home, and I'd said to my mom, I feel the call to ministry, and she said, oh, wow, it's exciting. And then I told my dad, I said, hey, dad, I feel a call into the ministry. And he said, well, I don't know what that is, but I'll support you. He always did. He supported me. But the most unique response of me telling that God experience to someone came with my college counselor. Because when I was exiting my junior year, I had met with my, my college counselor and kind of given her the trajectory of my life and what I felt like I was going to be doing. And then I returned from the summer and I go into her office and she sits down, she gets out her notes and she says, hey, let's kind of get back into this again. We need to talk again. And I said, well, there's a change of plans. She said, what's that? And I said, well, I feel a call into ministry. And she said, what's that? I said, well, I feel a call to be a pastor. And she said, son, you're on your own. 
I don't have a clue what to tell you. Where to go to college, how to, I, you're, you're literally on your own. That's the last time I ever met with my college counselor. She had no paradigm whatsoever for someone going into ministry. But the interesting point of all of that is, is that here I had this encounter with God, and I had it with a group of people, but it was also highly individual. And exiting that, I told some people, and there were different responses. The story we're getting ready to read is exactly like this. It's where Jesus shows up and speaks to someone. This, by the way, is in a group context, but it's highly personal, and it's highly individual. And so kind of with that sensibility, I want us to read together John chapter 20, and we're going to read verses 24 to 31 out loud. So John chapter 20, verses 24 to 31. Are we ready? Let's read. Here we go. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, was one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, in reading this episode and putting myself in there, the first thing I thought about Doubting Thomas was this. Doubting Thomas probably had FOMO from that day on. He had to have, because he was not with the other 11 when Jesus first appeared, and now he's back and Jesus shows up. Do you know what FOMO is to everyone? Fear of missing out, absolutely. My kids tell me if someone has FOMO, it's annoying. That's what they say. And they're the ones that educated me on what FOMO is many, many years ago. Now, interestingly enough, when I was growing up in the church, sometimes this passage was preached to put FOMO into you so that you come to church. They would say, didn't you notice that when Thomas wasn't in church when he was supposed to, he missed Jesus. I see it totally differently. I see it as the loving kindness of God. Thomas was not there the first week, but a week later, Jesus shows up just for him. This isn't about FOMO. This is about God's goodness and his kindness to anyone who wants to understand who Jesus is. 
Now, in looking at our story, you would discover that when Thomas is mentioned in all of the Gospels, he's introduced to us as Thomas, also known as Didymus. Now, if you were to look this up, you'd discover that Thomas is Aramaic and Didymus is Greek, and they both mean twin. Thomas means twin, even in English, but in, that comes closer to the Aramaic, and then Didymus means twin in the Greek. So what we discover is every gospel sometimes tells you in John several times that Thomas is a twin. His name means something. There's a message in his name. I have a question for you. How many of us sitting here know what your name means? You've got a name and you know what it means. Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you don't have a clue and you've never thought about it before. Yeah, there you go. My name is Peter which biblically means the rock. And you knew that by looking at me. You're like, that dude's the rock, because that's what his name means. Now, it was interesting, but while we were out doing CityServe this week, um, I met a lady at West Haven. She's absolutely wonderful, and her name is Joy. And we were there working around the buildings, and Joy came over, and she said, I've seen you here before. And so her and I started chatting. She's a wonderful person. And when I left, I said, hey, my name's Pete. She said, my name is Joy. And I said, you live up to your name. And she said, why not? She was just bubbling with joy, just a wonderful person. The idea, though, is, is that the names actually mean something. To say in the Bible that Thomas is a twin wants you to get a message. The message has to be understood because there's meaning in a name. Recently, I did a wedding for a couple that got married two weeks ago here at City. His name was Gary. Her name's Lee. Gary is from the Germanic gar, which means spear, like a garfish. So his name actually meant spear or warrior. When I mentioned that during his wedding, his grown adult children kind of busted out laughing. Not sure why. Her name's Lee. Lee means meadow or delicate. So when I shared what her name meant, her kids bust out laughing. Because somehow, Lee and Gary, I don't really know what it all meant, but in the midst of it, what we know biblically is names often mean something. Now it's interesting though, Thomas means twin. The Bible wants you to know that. So what I did was I did a little bit of research on twins. And the fascinating thing that I found out was this, that cryptophagia is a phenomenon of language by, developed by twins, identical or fraternal, that only the two children can understand. Most linguists associate cryptophagia with some idea glossia. About 40% of twins share a language that often disappears. Isn't that amazing? So the twins know each other so well they develop a language between them that no one else can understand. And at times it disappears from their lives. So just in case you were wondering, I asked one of our video people that works here for us, uh, Jonathan and his twin brother, uh, Josh, I asked them if they ever developed a language. They said no. So you don't need to hound them and ask them after the service if they did. But what's interesting is twins have a unique relationship, even to the point of having a unique, a unique language. Now, Thomas is a twin. 
And normally at the end of the service, I begin to talk about feet to your faith. The idea of what do we do to act upon the story that what we just read, but I want to start talking about it now. So feet to your faith. What do we do with this story? Well, let's recall what Thomas said. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I want you to catch what's happening. Thomas was not with the rest of the disciples. Jesus had showed up and revealed himself to them. They had a God experience like we talked about earlier, and they had obviously uploaded that to Thomas. Thomas, you missed it. You were out watching the soccer game, and we were here with Jesus. And he showed up, and he showed us his hands in his side. And the response of Thomas is, unless I serve my finger and my hand, I will never believe. And here's why that's important, and here's the gospel message, is we put feet to our faith. Listen, the gospel is for you. It's personal. It's not enough to have everyone around you believe. Notice, they were sold on who Jesus was. But Thomas says, for me, I, me, I. Here's what I need to do to believe for myself. There are no secondhand Christians. Everyone determines what they're going to do with Jesus. It's personal and individual, but it's also corporate and congregational. What's interesting in the Gospels is that when anyone ever says yes to Jesus, almost immediately they go and tell someone else and they become part of a community of faith. But notice the community of faith does not save you. It's a personal decision that you make in and of your own faith in the person of Jesus. And that's what Thomas does. Now as we think about feet to your faith, what can we say from this story about the resurrected Jesus? Number one, this is important. Jesus is not a ghost. This is important. And the reason why is, is that in the Bible, there's reference to ghosts. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was walking on the Sea of Galilee, the disciples see him in the moonlight, they see him walking, and they become terrified and say, there's a ghost. A ghost, biblically, apparently, is some disembodied spirit. But when you look at who Jesus is, he is definitively not a ghost. The second thing we can say about the resurrected Jesus from this story is this. This is the exact same Jesus when he was dead and buried as it was when he was resurrected, and yet he's different. He's the exact same Jesus. Notice what Thomas says. Thomas says, unless I can do these things, and then Jesus approaches him and says, Thomas, come here. Put your finger in my hands and insert your hand in my side. Jesus isn't a ghost. He is a physical being that can be touched. He's a physical being. But what's incredible is, you get the sense that the story tells us the doors were locked, so Jesus appears in the room without coming through the door. So apparently, Jesus is at home in this world in resurrected body, but he's also prepared for another world 
where the natural laws that we succumb to don't seem to affect him. And so we know Jesus is exactly the same, and yet he's somehow different. And as we look at this story, and we think about faith to our faith, one of the things that strike me is how faithful God is. You see, Thomas had said, unless these certain things happen, I won't believe. And Jesus shows up and says to him, let's do this. You see, God is faithful. And I think about the text in the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 7 through 8. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For, for everyone who asks receives, to the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Notice in our story that the door is locked, and yet Jesus appears. And for us, and from what I've seen, is that if your door of your heart is open, you will find Jesus every time. I have met over the years with countless people who have wanted to meet and talk about Jesus. And in meeting with them, I find two types of people. I find one person who wants to meet and talk about Jesus, but their heart is closed. And usually what will happen is they want to argue about some specific things about Jesus. And I'll share my side, they'll share their side, and we end up parting Still friends, but their heart isn't open. And then the other type of person that I meet with is someone that meets and will sit down and will talk about Jesus, but their heart is open and there's an eternal difference between checking out Jesus with a door closed in your heart or a door open in your heart. And here's what Jesus promises, and I've seen it true for decades. Anyone who comes to Jesus with the door of their heart open finds him 100% of the time. He will never miss you, ever. And if you've been here at City for some period of time and you've got people around you that have been talking to you about Jesus and sharing their God experience and sharing with you what they know about Christ, it comes to a point where we step in the story and we ask ourselves the question, well, I believe I want to be crystal clear that when doubting Thomas steps in front of Jesus, he makes a declaration that's key. He looks at Jesus and says, my Lord and my God. Jesus is not just a great teacher. Jesus is not a moral role model. Jesus is Lord and God. That's huge. That's the decision that Thomas comes to. And we discover that when he says that, Jesus responds, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then something odd happens in the gospel. There's an ending to the gospel before the end of the gospel. At the end of chapter 20, just on the heels of the Doubting Thomas story, we read John 20, 30 through 31. Here's what the text says. Jesus performed many other signs 
in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So as we conclude this sermon, I want you to very quickly take a moment and I want you to place yourself in the story that we've just read. And as you place yourself in the story that we've just read, it's interesting to note that the church fathers, the original church preachers said this, that in the gospel, we are never told who Thomas's twin is. We're just told he's a twin. Every time you meet him, Thomas the twin. And what the church fathers, the original fathers preached was this. We are never told the name of his twin because it's you. You're his twin. Whether man or woman, you are his twin. And the question is, is that in being his twin, when you stand in front of Jesus, do you agree with Thomas? Thomas.